we're not trying to go in there and put people out, make it a bad place to live. So trying to work with people and you have to make some accommodations here and there. Once you kind of work through it with them, they're resistant to change. But once you explain it well and show them how much more convenient it'll be, most of the people end up being okay with it. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the Surgeon Syndicate. We are here back for the second part of our conversation with Josh Condado and Colin Davis. Josh is a CRNA and Colin now full-time real estate professional who was an ER nurse in his original life. And they are partners in manufactured housing communities. So we're going to dig in a little bit today into more of the real estate experience. If you didn't listen to the first show, please go back and listen to it. There were some great insights into the process of moving into real estate and partnerships and the freedoms it leaves us. So welcome back, guys. Thank you. All right. So manufactured housing communities. It's interesting because my impression is, and I haven't invested, you know, full disclosure, Josh and I talked about doing a deal together uh, a little while back that didn't go through. And that was my first venture into considering manufactured housing communities or more commonly known as trailer parks. <laughs> and I think this is an asset class that if we were to go back 20 years, that there wasn't a whole lot of love for it and people didn't want to invest in it. But it seems a lot more popular now and, and really has been one of the hotter asset classes. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> what are the great things about mobile home parks? You can go ahead and start, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> I guess one of the best things is like when somebody tells you that they're investing in mobile home parks, like what's your initial reaction? And that initial reaction keeps a lot of investors out of mobile home parks. So the barrier to entry is a lot higher for them compared to apartments. If somebody says they own an apartment, you're like, oh, that's like so cool. Someone says they own a mobile home park. You're like, what? Like, why? <laughs> so the barrier to entry is higher. So that helps a lot. Traditionally, your returns on mobile home parks have been a lot higher than on investing in uh, apartment syndications or just apartments in general. They are getting more popular though, now that People like Brandon Turner have started talking about them publicly. And I don't know, they're just getting a little more popular. The returns are getting compressed. However, they're still better than apartments, but we'll see what the future holds for those now that they're getting a little bit more popular. Do you find it any more or less difficult to manage than non-freestanding housing like apartments? So that's kind of the side that my wife and I handle. And I think that's what actually turned us like shifted our focus fully to mobile home parks was that we were managing some smaller multifamily units and some single family homes. And then in July of 2022, we bought our first mobile home park. And at the end of the year, we were looking over, you know, our PNLs and everything. And just in looking at this park that we'd owned for six months, it was outperforming all of our other properties. And we'd gotten minimal requests for any kind of maintenance or anything because that park was at the time was 100% tenant owned homes. And so in that model, obviously, if you have some park owned homes, you're going to have maintenance like you would in any other like multifamily. But with the tenant owned homes, that's great because you just own the land. We do have septic and well on these. So there were some 
maintenance required for that. There was well testing you have to do and septic maintenance, dumping the tanks and that kind of stuff. But all in all, it was very low maintenance compared to the other ones. Fast forward to this year, 2023, we've had a little more drama at the parks, a lot of it tied to a rent raise we did. But for example, there was an incident with a dog off the leash and somebody lost a finger. So that was kind of just maybe something you wouldn't deal with in another asset class, but definitely still overall less to do. And a lot of it has to do with the types of multifamily buildings we're buying. We're still kind of getting started. So buying older properties that required more maintenance. But now just with the parks, owning the land and just doing the lot rent, it's been a lot easier. And just the returns are so much better. So the interesting thing is when you own multifamily properties, because everybody who's rented, think about the things you called your landlord. If the toilet doesn't work, if there's a leaky faucet, if you know you got a draft in the wintertime, all these things are things you're calling the landlord for. But in a mobile home park, if the tenant owns the mobile home and they're just paying you lot rent, all that stuff within the mobile home is their deal, correct? Yep. That's right. I mean, we even had one situation where somebody moved in and to a fourplex we own and he was telling us, hey, like the fridge isn't working. And we're like, oh, shoot. So we're trying to figure it out. I'm like, is it turned all the way to cold or whatever? And for whatever he can figure out, it's not working. So then we're like, all right, well, we'll get the appliance guy out there. The appliance guy goes out there and he just, it looked like it was turned on, but it wasn't turned on all the way. And it was like 80 bucks for this guy to basically go out and just turn the knob like just to the on position. And yeah, that's not something we're getting called for in mobile homes when we don't own them anyways. So yeah, big difference. Yeah. Basically, wherever the utility hookups are, anything distal to that, if something goes wrong, the tenant has to take care of it because it's their home. Anything proximal to where the hookups are, that's our problem. And those are typically major like septic well type issues. So they're a lot more financially burdening, I guess. But yeah, anything after that is we have to take care of anything distal to where the hookups are. We don't have to worry about and we don't get calls. You know, not being a plumber or electrician, I can't say how they speak in the industry, but I did find it interesting that you spoke about the hookups <laughs> as proximal and distal. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll train myself out of that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm Our listeners in. on this show are probably right there with you. They know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> So yeah. it's an interesting thing when you talk about the returns, because this took me a little while to get used to that. A lot of the things that you look at and you go, okay, that's fancy. I want to own that. It's kind of the same allure as if you're looking at your own house or whatever. There's a big, nice house. Wow, that'd be nice to own versus a small falling down house. Oh, that's not so cool. Um, and you get into the same thing in commercial properties. If it's the mall that's got all the big brand name stores, so it's got a Nordstrom and it's got all this other stuff, you go, wow, that would be really cool to own. And then you look at the less fancy place and you're like, I don't know if I like that. But part of the return with that, as you said, is that the less fancy it is often are the better returns. And it doesn't necessarily mean there's more work. Have you found that? Yeah. I mean, I would say so. I mean, in the mobile home parks anyways, I mean, the less fancy, the smaller multifamily tends to be a lot more work, but in the mobile home space, yeah. Because you're getting them for a better deal. I think the first one we got at about a nine cap, I think, 
it was almost nine and a half. Our first yeah. two we got at nine and a half caps. Whereas and, apartments are going for like I don't actually don't know where they are, but I assume well, they're like five or six. In the same area. Your luxury class A apartments and premium locations, they're starting to drift up now, but they were compressing under a five cap, like a four cap. And kind of the other side of that is often the people who are buying those, if it's 300 unit luxury apartment building, it's being owned by a big private equity firm. And a lot of their investors are people who aren't looking for big returns. They're looking for diversification. They're looking for safety. That's kind of the difference. If you've got a net worth of $20 million, you're not worried as much about seeing that grow to where you'll have financial freedom because you kind of already have it. You're a little more concerned about protecting it and that it stays there and it keeps spitting off money for you to live on. So you're looking for diversification. You're looking for safety. And that Miami class A apartment building is going to be in demand regardless of the economy. And they've got the $100 million to go buy it. And so the investor money they're placing is looking for different returns. And so the returns are lower. You kind of see the same thing in class A retail that you're looking at 5% returns. Now that interest rates are up, that'll probably push up some, but still it's a lot more of the interest in safety versus interest in growth, where when you move into something that doesn't carry as much prestige with it, often you see better returns. Yeah. That's what we're looking so, for. <laughs> you're like, yeah. yeah, forget the financial security, the long-term. Yeah, we <laughs> we're looking for growth, not so much security. Well, that's great. The first step of that growth, though, is helping you replace being tied to a job. Your introduction said you're trading your time for dollars. And now you're finding a way that you can put in some work and it kind of grows more than just getting paid for that hour of work. And there's that opportunity in asset classes that aren't already streamlined. Yeah, that's something that it's kind of twisted my mind around a lot because as a CRNA, like you make really good money, but you only make really good money when you're in the operating room doing your craft or whatever. And I fell into the trap of like picking up extra shifts all the time and making a really good living. But now that we started investing in real estate, like we put in time now and this asset's going to pay us forever. And that like, I would so much rather get $10 a day for the rest of my life than a thousand dollars right now. Like that's no brainer now that I've done it a little bit. And maybe that's the transition. When you first come out of school, you don't have the money to invest. And so there's that time that if you have a plan, you work more, but you don't change your standard of living from being in school. Maybe that's the hard part is you, you come all the way first through school and you're watching your friends, they got a house and they're going on vacation and you're still in school and you got nothing. Then you get out of school and you want to live a little bit. But if yeah. you live too much, all of a sudden you've got nothing, even though you're bringing in what looks like a really good income. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much money you make. You can always spend more. <laughs> <laughs> Better put that other kitty away so you can buy that. But it is addictive. The first time you buy an income-producing asset, and mm -hmm. then all of a sudden you look at your bank account and you see these deposits are flowing in. I guess it may be more work collecting those. So do you still have to go collect rent checks or do you have that part automated? So we use an online rent collection system and that we do our leases and everything through that. But 
another thing of about the mobile home park class of people is that some of them are older. They don't have the same internet capabilities. So we do still collect some checks from, I'd say maybe half the tenants right now. We're actually transitioning to a new program, Buildium. And with Buildium, they have pay near you options and other type things that make it easier for the tenants who aren't as computer savvy to still make the payments without having to send a check. So we're not chasing checks too much. So that way... So tell me about the, I've heard that mentioned as a concern as you get into an asset class where I've seen some people who are like, yeah, we don't move money online. We don't trust that. So how does that work with building where they can pay in cash or with a check, but you don't have to pick that up? Right. So there's partners that work with Buildium. I think some of the stores like Dollar General or Family Dollar, and they accept payments that go through Buildium. I don't fully understand. Like I said, my wife, she's kind of the brains behind the property management side of stuff. So she's the one diving into a lot of that. But my understanding of it is they go in and they can pay and then it's somehow direct deposit to us. We've tried to be understanding because we're not trying to go in there and put people out and make it a bad place to live or anything like that. So trying to work with people. And I know in particular, there's one person in one of the parks we bought who's just an older guy who just does not have anything. He doesn't have phone, like a smartphone, computer, any of that stuff. So you have to make some accommodations here and there, but for the most part, it's pretty good. And I think like a lot of people, once you kind of work through it with them, they're resistant to change. But once you explain it well and show them how much more convenient it'll be, most of the people end up being okay with it. So is that something that you have to do or do you have a park manager? So if somebody you're talking to somebody who's never owned a mobile home park, never lived in one, yeah. you know, is that you running it or you have somebody doing that for you? There's different models. I mean, you can have an on-site manager that collects checks or whatever the payment form is. In our case, Jen and I, my wife, we handle the property management. And so we are doing the new leases and we're doing all the rent collection so we have an on-site guy in one of the parks, but he's more of a groundskeeper. He takes care of the mowing and the snow plowing in the winter. And we do all the leasing and rent collection and all that. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. The whole building being set up to go into a retail center. There's yeah. a lot of the retail places, and I hadn't heard of this before, are looking at other things that drive traffic. Mm. So often there may not be as many fees as one might think with some of that because they see it as if it's a way to bring their key clientele or the people they really want to have in the store into the store, your renters come in, hand them a check, and then go buy something. Yeah. (laughs) That's good for them too. Yeah. I think the fees are minimal. I think it's about four or $5, like a four or $5 convenience fee. And then, I mean, there's other ways you can incentivize people to use the rent collection. Like one of the parks, we give a discount if you use the online system as opposed to sending a check. So that usually sits well with people and they're willing to do what needs to be done to save a little money. You know, the early automation. So the first rental property we own, we bought this fourplex and the prior owner had it set up that when they signed the lease, he would have them write out 12 checks and date them for the beginning of every month for the whole lease. And people actually really liked it because we did that in the beginning too, until we switched to a rent management program. And so the beginning of the month, you just go and you go to the envelope and you you pull out the checks and deposit them online. 
And it took a few minutes to do, but it was a pretty interesting. So there was no going and getting the checks. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> that's a one that could be tried for the folks that don't do anything online or don't want to leave the house to pay. Yeah. My wife and I are in Los Angeles and our whole portfolio is in Wisconsin. So, I mean, outside of them sending the checks, it's not like we can go show up to collect them anyway. So we had to have something that we could do remotely. Okay. That's interesting. So in managing remotely, what are some of the hurdles and learning curves to get to figure that out? First and foremost is just maintenance. I think you're not familiar with the area. You don't have as many contacts. So just figuring that out. And I think the biggest thing there was just planning ahead. And as soon as we bought a property in an area, starting to put together a list of plumbers, electricians, handymen, contractors, all that stuff, rather than waiting for a problem to arise and then looking for them. Because especially in some of these areas where we're investing, um, it's hard to find workers. And I'd call plumbers and they'd be two weeks out. So I'd be sitting on the phone calling, you know, five, six, seven, eight plumbers. So having a vendor list that you can just refer to and making contact with them and letting them know, you know, hey, this is who we are. We just bought a property in this area. We'd like to use you kind of as a preferred vendor. That was a huge step in helping us streamline things in terms of maintenance. And then in terms of the parks, one of the issues we've had is just being able to lay eyes on the park, making sure people are keeping their areas clean, making sure the park's looking good. We have trees that we have to check on and having a groundskeeper or somebody in place, some sort of person that can just report back to you, that definitely helps. But at the end of the day, nobody's going to look after it the way we would. So that's been a bit of a struggle. And we're looking at installing Wi-Fi so we can put in cameras just to kind of monitor things. And then especially after we had this dog bite incident, it's just a somewhat of a safety regulation or measure just to keep an eye on things and make sure everything's running smoothly and clean. So, Yeah, that's an interesting one from people in the retail world. I hear a lot about installing cameras and the multiple benefits they've found from the actual the amount of unwanted activity in the area and in apartments goes down because people know there's a camera and it becomes a selling point to their tenants that they feel safer that, okay, so you get a little higher quality tenant that they're like, oh, good. Somebody's keeping track of things. I haven't heard of it yet in a mobile home park. So I don't know if you're going to get, you know, whether the line is there between pushback, like, oh, we're being watched versus this is yeah. to help you out. Well, I think in pairing it with park-wide Wi-Fi that we would provide as a benefit to the people there, you can kind of like soften the blow a little bit like, hey, we're going to be installing cameras, part of that will be Wi-Fi throughout the park. So you'll be able to hop on that. If you get a good signal, you can cancel yours, save a little money there. And I think the people that would be resistant to it are probably the people we don't want in the park anyways. So it kind of works itself out. That's a great perspective. It's funny how often you can make some changes and groom your desired client by making those changes and then they can kind of opt in or opt out themselves. Yeah. If they want to live completely off the grid, that your park is not the place to live off grid. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. If I, I think back to the cameras. My parents actually, they bought a laundromat up in northern Wisconsin not too long ago, and it came fully equipped with security cameras and everything. And then when my dad was like trying to figure out how they worked, he pulled it off and it was a complete dummy camera. So I think just seeing that there's a camera there, kind of people steer clear of it a little bit. 
So maybe we don't even have to hook them up. I don't know. <laughs> just have something there that looks like a camera. Just going to the thrift store and buying camera looking things and putting them up. <laughs> Paper and shake camera. <laughs> or you just buy little mirrored bubbles and put them up in the corner all over the place and put like video surveillance stickers on them. Yeah. Just the threat of being monitored is enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So have there been other things? So when you're buying a new park, so talking about grooming your desired client, if you raise rent or you change things, has that been part of your plan that you're like, this is who we want to live here? Or is it more just take the park and kind of change the park to make it a better place? Yeah, I don't think we've necessarily considered it in that way in terms of rent raises. I think inevitably it kind of works itself out to be that way, but no, it wasn't any kind of plan going in. It was just these parks were buying, they were under market rent. So they were due for a rent increase anyways. And then inevitably that kind of happens where you lose a few people and they tend to be more undesirable tenants anyway. So it just kind of naturally worked itself out. Okay. Well, a lot of the current owners for these mobile home parks are kind of getting older. They've owned them forever. And you'll notice that with landlords that have been landlords forever is that they get a little bit lazy with rent raises. And one park next door with somebody who just bought it is, for example, we'll say it's $350 for a lot rent. The ones we're buying, they're like well below like 200 or I don't know what was our re most recent one. I think it was 240 where the guy right next door, like 20 minutes away, they're already at like 360. So you'll notice that there's a lot of room for growth there where people just get lazy and they don't raise the rents to where they should be. And there's a huge disconnect on where these property rents are right now. So that's something that we've been able to come in and kind of stabilize bring rents to where they should be. And I think the tenants that are currently in there, they realize that they have a deal and we raise it substantially, like whatever you want to call it, like 50%, maybe not quite 50%. Mm -hmm. And they're still okay with it. A lot of them are still like, oh, I'm still getting a better price than the guys next door. So we're cool with that. <laughs> if you're paying 150 and you realize the going rate everywhere else in town is 380. <laughs> yeah, when you go cool to 250, <laughs> there's nothing to complain about. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And that's pretty common, I think, in the manufactured housing community space. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's an interesting thing, though. I think about what a great place to be in life that you've got your asset that's generating cash flow and it generates enough. It's almost like you're, you're that class A uh, private equity now that you're like, I mean, as long as it's feeding me, I don't need to mess with it. Right. And you can go 10 or 20 years, you're just collecting checks and you don't care where market rent is anymore because there's enough money at the end of the day. I mean, who knows? In 30 years, maybe that's where we're going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I see in apartments and in retail, the same thing that often those are the ones though, when you come in, there's a lot of opportunity there because there's opportunity to raise the rent, but that they also need some maintenance, but with that maintenance pays itself back with generating more income. Yeah, we actually, I don't know, we kind of got away with something, I think, on these two, because we actually bought from people that had recently bought and done a lot of that work. And then just the timing was just right where they were just ready to get out. And they were doing okay. They were cashing out and they were doing pretty well themselves, especially the second park we bought. It was from a couple. And I just think they hadn't raised rents just because they got such a good deal on it. They were, like you said, still cash flowing, even with the lower rents. And then either didn't want to push people out, didn't want to deal with vacancy or whatever it was, just didn't think they could push rents higher. 
they didn't but in the meantime they'd clean the whole park up and we took over a pretty stable basically turnkey property so we've done okay with that but i think there is that's a little more of the outlier i think they tend to be the more value add things you got to come in and do a lot of work on for our second park that we bought that was just kind of right place at the right time timing was perfect because they had just gone through an eviction and that's kind of a process so i think we towards the end of that eviction was when we reached out to them hey you want to sell and they're like in the middle of it like oh my goodness this is terrible like yeah let's just sell (laughs) so is there anything if somebody was looking at either buying a mobile home park or investing with somebody else in one what are the big red flags to run away from that deal well some people would say septic and well first two we own are both septic and well so that hasn't been a problem for us knock on wood but uh <laughs> depending on but we, and, and we have had some expenses related to that but it's not like a deal breaker for us i'd say infill is pretty tough so something with a lot of infill if somebody's coming in and they're telling you they're gonna on a deal they're gonna fill in you know whatever like 20 30 homes in a year or two unless they have a proven track record i'd be a little uh cautious with that one Okay. When you say infill, that's either vacant spots within the mobile home community or expanding it. That Yeah. Yeah. Or bringing in like, let's say you have a 50 pad park and it's only 25 homes on it. And they're saying, oh yeah, well, we're going to come in and we'll have it at full with 50 homes by year two. It's like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. (laughs) There's several websites you can get online to tell, like you can almost underwrite the location also. Like if population has been declining 10% for the last 20 years, there's probably not a good chance you're going to bring in like 100 new homes to this mobile home park. So there's ways to kind of underwrite the location just as much as you're underwriting for the property. Oh, okay. Yeah, we found that that when uh, when we wanted to raise rents on the first property we bought, that when I first looked, I was discouraged because I looked online at places for rent. There seemed to be quite a few places for rent. And then started calling on them and none of them were available. (laughs) And so you realize that, you know, there was stuff being advertised, but it all rented within a day. And so the demand was really there. And then as we raised rents, it was right after COVID. So all of our expenses went up 20, 30%. The repair stuff, you said we couldn't find contractors, went up even more. And so it went from being a cash flowing property to one that was going sideways oh yeah and the insurance increased then we raised the rents i think we went from 1500 to 16 to 17 to 18 but we only did it when somebody moved out i think this year is the first time we raised rents without on an existing tenant and nobody ever complained we still rented it in a day and so that was an interesting like oh if you're looking at buying into something and you make a few phone calls and there's all kinds of stuff sitting on the market but if you were really looking for a place and you'd be sweating it like (laughs) where am i gonna live that's probably a good place to be an owner yeah when we've been underwriting we underwrite the current property there's a lot of people that has unlimited funds like they've syndicated before and they can just raise as much money as they want and they can underwrite based on potential. That's not something that we've done. We underwrite based on what the property is producing right now. Yeah, I think that's, you know, from the people I know who have been doing this for a while, they under that have huge resources and hundreds of millions of dollars under management, they still underwrite stuff for current cash flow. And they won't buy anything that doesn't make a reasonable return as is 
and have a path to do a value add that can make it a home run. I think that's the one if you're investing with somebody who their worst case scenario makes you a decent return. That's all right. <laughs> for sure. So, well, guys, thank you so much for being here on the inaugural group panel interview of Surgeon Syndicate, groundbreaking media here. It's been great having you on the show. If people wanted to get in touch with you or see what you're doing, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Just recently started posting on social media. I was pretty anti-social media for the last three years, but I don't know, about six months ago, I started, or maybe less, started posting on social media. So I'm on all platforms. I'm at The Lifestyle CRNA on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. I don't know, all of them, I think, all of them. <laughs> I got a our... list of your social media here and we'll post those in the show notes. Yeah. Okay. And then we have our investment company websites, alldayinvestments.co. Okay. What's the best one? Probably Instagram. All right. <laughs> yeah. We're actually working on a podcast tailored towards teaching nurses about investing as well. So that's going to be Investing RN coming out in December. So there's another place to find us. Definitely follow us there. After you listen to Surgeon Syndicate, go to Investing RN and listen to that one. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being on the show. We'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, no other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better, so I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. Number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help. Schedule a call. We can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.